Hi, 8th graders. Uh, This is going to be the first uh, podcast you're going to have to listen to regarding our lectures for our class. Um, I might do this again, especially with some future um, notes where I need to further expand upon. Uh, This is a pretty particularly uh, important part in U.S. and world history, uh, the start of World War II and why World War II even uh, took place. And so I wanted to actually talk to you about it, some of the stuff we would have gone over in class. Um, So today we're going to look at the road to World War II. Um, You can follow along on your PowerPoint. Uh, Please make sure you're writing down all of the information that is underlined and bolded as per usual. I'm going to explain other information. And also, as I talked about um, on my website, uh, it's very important you actually listen to this. I realize it might be like, Ugh, I don't want to. Um, I am giving you two days to listen to this as well. Uh, but it's important that you listen because on your next test, I am going to base the questions that you have to answer off of the stuff that is from the recording. So at least one question is going to be based on what I'm talking about here. And if you're not able to actually explain things kind of similar to how I'm talking about it here, then I'm going to assume you didn't do the work that uh, I told you to do and you're not going to be happy with your test grade in that regard. So just make sure you do listen to this, um, that you um, are taking your notes um, and that you in particular are paying attention to what I'm saying. Uh, You do have today and you're going to have tomorrow to work on this as well. Um, but we're doing the world road, excuse me, road to World War II. Um, open up your PowerPoint and please go to slide two. You see a map of Europe um, on this slide. Uh, and you see that we're going to be talking about a guy you probably have all heard of. I hope you've all heard of uh, Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler's rise to power in Germany is directly related to the Great Depression. He was a soldier during World War I. Uh, he fought on the Western Front. Um, he came back to Germany. Uh, Germany had to pay reparations to France, uh, in particular for all the damage it had caused. If you look at this map here, uh, France is um, on the kind of that gray part and the east, I'm sorry, the Western part of the map uh, that is right next to the green. So. France's territory was pretty much destroyed as a result of World War One, in particular the territory on the east part of France, uh, so the northeastern parts. Um, so they needed to pay reparations uh, to the tune of uh, lots of money. In addition, uh, the Germans, um, because of the Great Depression, uh, they suffered under hyperinflation, which basically meant the government, in order to pay off its reparations and its debts, was printing money at such a fast pace that um, the money eventually was valueless. People would get Deutschmarke, which was the currency, and they would wallpaper their houses with the Deutschmarke. Um, they would uh, have to take a wheelbarrow of Deutschmarke to the market in order to buy a loaf of bread. Uh, the money is basically worthless. And the German people are suffering. There's uh, widespread poverty across Germany. People are hungry. Um, and as a result, people are ripe for a change. Hitler is able to seize upon this change. He uh, is not the founder of the National Socialist Party in Germany called the Nazis. 
Um, however, he is an early member and he becomes one of the mouthpieces for this party. This party is a far-right party. So if you, we've talked about the political spectrum, far-left is communism, far-right is fascism, and the National Socialist Party, even though today we think socialist, huh, that doesn't make sense, uh, that party, even though they gave that its, its name, it's actually on the far right of the spectrum. It adheres to fascism. Um, and Hitler is able to seize power in Germany uh, because of these divisions that resulted as a result of World War I and as a result of the Great Depression. Uh, before World War I, Germany, as we talked about, wanted to expand across Europe. It wanted to uh, take all the places where German was spoken or where a Germanic language was spoken and make it into one empire. Um, and so when World War I fizzled out and it was clear that Germany was in bad shape, Hitler was able to seize upon this dream as well. In 1933, he's appointed as the Chancellor of Germany. Um, however, he pretty soon begins to consolidate all the positions of power in Germany underneath him. And basically by 1934, he is a dictator. He has taken over and he's controlling the entire government. And because he's speaking the language that people want to hear, uh, this idea of German nationalism, expanding the German people's uh, reach, uh, this economic freedom that they're not having, um, people uh, really get behind Hitler in the 1930s, um, to the point where we now, in 2020, we look back on it and we're like, he's clearly not a good guy. Why would you get behind him? They're able to ignore the things that are outwardly not good about him in favor of the things that they think are going to help them. Let's go to slide number three. Nationalism, this expansionist idea, does not just extend towards expansion outside of Germany. Um, it's also this expansion of what the German people, the Nazi ideology, believes is the master race. Um, whereas uh, the German people are the ideal humans, basically, and that their power needs to be expanded so that more people can be like them. Anyone who's not Germanic, um, if you are Asian or African, if you are Jewish, Oh, God forbid, if you're in Nazi Germany. Uh, if you are a gypsy, those are people who come from India and tend to be nomadic across Europe. Um, if you are Polish, Polish people tend to look an awful lot like German people, but they are disliked by the Germans for historical reasons. If you are one of those groups, or if you're someone who goes against the Nazi ideology, um, then the Germans are going to persecute you. Um, and the first concentration camps, as we think of them, not death camps, that's different, but concentration camps where people were forced to labor and work, those are going to be created in 1933, so at the very start of Hitler's reign. And people kind of ignored it a little bit. They didn't know about the Holocaust that, until the war is over, but this idea of concentration camps and like re-education camps people might have been aware of and they're not necessarily doing anything about it. Now, a lot of times you will hear people say, oh, Hitler didn't like Jews because um, his mom died and her doctor was Jewish and he didn't save her. Or Hitler had a bad experience with a Jewish person. That's not true. None of that's true. And in fact, his mom's doctor, who was Jewish, he helped Hitler helped him get out of Germany when he knew that the Holocaust was going to unfold. Um, the reason why the 
Jews in Germany were so persecuted um, is a historical reason. The Jews have been persecuted across Europe since the Middle Ages. We're going to talk about that next year when we do world history. Um, in the Middle Ages, uh, pogroms would take place where uh, Christians would go into Jewish centers called ghettos. Um, that's an Italian word. It's the part of an Italian city where the Jews would be forced to live. Um, and they would basically tear down synagogues. They would kill all the people who were in these ghettos. Um, and they would uh, cause panic across Jewish communities. Uh, the Jews were kicked out of England in the 1290s. I think it's 1291. Um, they were uh, kicked out of Spain in 1492, I believe. Um, so the Jews are, generally speaking, they're a scapegoat, and they have always been in European history. So the Nazi party, who needs someone to blame World War I on, uh, so they basically blame the Jews. The reason why we lost World War I against France and Britain is not because the Germans did badly. It's because the Jews uh, were uh, helping the, uh, the French. They were helping the British. They were the ones who were trying to um, uh, destroy the German victory and destroy the German military and the German state. They also blame capitalism. Hitler doesn't really like capitalism all that much. He doesn't like communism, don't get me wrong. And in fact, many communists are going to wind up in concentration camps. Um, but this idea of capitalism, where individuals compete for money uh, and for goods and services, that is something Hitler doesn't like. He's kind of somebody who wants um, the state to be leading all competition. Uh, next year, we're going to talk about something called mercantilism. He's kind of more along those lines. He doesn't like capitalism. He doesn't like communism. He thinks both of these are Jewish conspiracies to undermine the German people. And so uh, in 1935, he uh, signs the Nuremberg Laws, which strip the Jews of many of their rights. Um, many Jews who are worried about Hitler, and rightly so, try to leave Germany. They try to go to the United States, to Britain. Um, if you go to like New York City, there are large sections of the city, um, large sections of New Jersey, where I'm from, which have very large uh, Jewish communities. Um, I remember growing up, you were either Catholic or you were Jewish, basically. Um, so as a result, the Jewish communities uh, outside of Germany and outside of Eastern Europe really uh, grow. And by the time that the Holocaust actually happens, a lot of the people who are, um, who die in the Holocaust are not actually from Germany, so to speak. They're probably more from, like, Russia, Romania, Hungary, all these other countries that Hitler's armies attacked, took over, and then they deported all their Jews to concentration camps because they didn't have time to leave, basically. Let's go to slide number five. There are many Germans, uh, people who are ethnically German, who speak German, who live outside of Germany. Um, kind of like today where there'll be people who speak uh, Spanish. Maybe they are from Mexico or they're from uh, the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico. Um, but they are outside of that homeland and they're still living their culture and living their um, language um, in another place. In this particular period, if you recall, the Treaty of Versailles kind of decided what, what countries were going to be countries and what other places were just going to be parts of other countries. They organized the geography of Europe. Um, some of the places that uh, were not deemed uh, countries were German-speaking. 
And so you'd have parts of the Czech Republic, uh, which is a country uh, in Europe today, um, then it would have been called Czechoslovakia, um, where they have a large population of Jew, uh, sorry, excuse me, of Germans. Um, you'd have parts of uh, like um, Poland, where there are large populations of Germans. Um, same thing maybe in the Netherlands. Uh, the other thing that happened as a result of the Treaty of Versailles is the Germans and the Austrians, both German-speaking people, they had wanted to unite and to form one larger German-speaking country uh, because they were two powerful empires previously who had caused World War I, they were denied this right. And as such, both countries were pretty annoyed um, at the fact that they had not only lost all their land, they had people who were ethnically part of their country who weren't actually allowed to live in their country, um, and they also were not able to join and make one kind of mega German country together. So Hitler is recognizing all of these different problems. He's recognizing that the Treaty of Versailles is bankrupting Germany. Uh, it is uh, dividing Germans across borders so that they're not all together. Um, and if we go to slide number six, he decides to do something about this. Hitler himself actually wasn't um, German. He was actually Austrian. Um, and so when in March 1938, uh, Hitler entered Austria, he annexed it for Germany. If you actually put this slide on playing mode, you will see that one of the images uh, starts moving because it's from a movie. Um, when he annexed Austria for Germany, uh, Austria became part of Germany and this was an immediate uh, effect. Um, this is called the Anschluss, which in German means uh, the joining. Um, there was a legislative act on March 13th, uh, which uh, joined them, uh, and this act was subject to ratification by a plebiscite, which basically means that they, the people have to vote on whether they want to, uh, the Austrian people have to vote on whether they want to become a part of Germany. This plebiscite is held on April 10th, um, and it officially recorded a support of 99.7% of the voters. So 99.7% of Austrians think joining Germany is a good idea. I'd like you to actually think about whether you believe that number is a real number. Because I would hope that you guys, uh, if you ever hear about an election in which 99.7% of voters believed or agreed with something, I hope you guys kind of step back and are like, that doesn't make sense. If I were to ask you guys if you wanted to have pizza or cookies or something like that, you guys would be arguing back and forth over what you want. You generally don't find large margins of 99.7% of an entire population agreeing to anything, especially not an issue as large as joining one country and getting rid of its national identity to another country. So I'd like you to look at the picture at the bottom of the slide. It's the kind of Manila-y looking one. It has lots of writing. That was the ballot uh, that people had to kind of sign. Um, and if you did agree that Austria had to be part of Germany, you would probably sign inside this little, I'm sorry, this bigger circle that's right smack in the middle of the paper. 
But if you don't like the idea, you would have to like tick that one that's on the right, which is a smaller circle. So visually speaking, they're trying to very much make you say, yes, this is a great idea because they're putting the circle that you choose right smack in the middle of painting. It's twice the size of the other circle. Um, so there's that. There's also the fact that they probably threw away quite a lot of ballots that um, said no. Uh, people were intimidated where if they had gone and voted no, then maybe they would be arrested. So this 99.7% of Austrian voters who want to be part of Germany, probably not a real thing. Probably very much made up um, by the Nazi party in order to make it seem like this was a really popular idea when it, idea when it really wasn't. Let's go to slide seven. Europe is kind of worried about this whole idea, a little bit. But the powers in France and Britain don't do anything. And as a result, uh, Hitler is emboldened by the annexation of Austria. He annexed them, nobody did anything about it. And so as a result, on October of 1938, the German armies marched into a territory of the Czechoslovakian uh, country called the Sudetenland, and they took over uh, the Sudetenland. This is a German-speaking part of Czechoslovakia. Um, so this leads to preparations for war by Britain, Czechoslovakia, and France. Um, Britain especially hopes to avoid war. Um, Neville Chamberlain, who is the Prime Minister at this point, signs an agreement uh, called the Munich Agreement on the 29th of September 1938. Um, he says that in signing this agreement, that basically it says that Hitler can have the Sudetenland, but he does not get to it to have the rest of Czechoslovakia. Um, and Chamberlain says that by signing this, by giving him the Sudetenland, he has brought peace for our time. Uh, six months later, however, Hitler decides to ignore the agreement, take the rest of the Czechoslovakian territory, um, and suddenly he's now conquered two countries, and nobody's done anything about it. Let's go to slide eight. November 9th through 10th, 1938, a pogrom takes place in Germany. Uh, because a Nazi diplomat is suddenly killed. This pogrom is basically where um, individuals would go into Jewish communities, they would destroy property, uh, they would kill people, um, terrorize the citizenry. And in this particular pogrom called Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass is what that means, um, hundreds of Jews are killed as a result, um, and roughly 30,000 Jews in Austria and Germany and now the Czech Republic and um, Czechoslovakia, I should say, um, they are taken to concentration camps. Uh, Jewish homes, hospitals, schools, businesses, all of them are ransacked and destroyed. This is very much a sign of things to come. If you recall in 1935, many Jews' rights were stripped uh, because of the um, Nuremberg Laws. And now we're seeing that people are able to go into Jewish communities, destroy their property, kill the people who were there, uh, kidnap the rest of them, put them on a train to a concentration camp, and nothing is actually going to happen to them. 
them in that case being the people who are doing all of this. There are no consequences for doing things like this. So this is a very scary moment for the Jews in Europe, but also for people around the world who are watching this uh, and wondering what is going to happen to an entire historical ethnic group that lives in Europe. We'll go back to that, though. We're going to move on to another country uh, who helped to instigate World War II. Let's go to slide number nine. Germany wasn't alone in its goals of kind of world domination, so to speak. Um, Japan also wanted to uh, take over parts of Asia and have economic domination over the rest of Asia. Uh, in 1937, um, Japan invaded Manchuria, which was a part of northeastern China. It wanted to remove the Western country's influence in China and replace it with its own influence, basically. Um, and afterwards and during World War II, Japan is going to use uh, China as basically kind of a building block to building an empire across the rest of Asia. There are going to be two fronts in World War II. You're going to have the European front, which is going to be focused on Hitler and, Italy, and Germany. Um, and then you're going to have the Japanese front, the Pacific front, uh, which is focused on uh, kicking the Japanese out of places in the Pacific, as well as of places um, on the Asian uh, mainland. Let's go to slide number 10. The third country that is involved in starting World War II is going to be Italy. I believe when you guys were looking at the Great Depression, you saw that the first um, uh, person to come to power uh, that was fascist was Benito Mussolini uh, in Italy. Uh, he's the first fascist uh, ruler in the world, um, and he is going to... Uh, go to power basically because he promises the Italians that he will assist them as a result of uh, their economic problems that they've been having. Now Mussolini uh, does so by taking control of all of Italy by force basically. So he has uh, troops that go around the country and if you don't agree with him they'll beat you up or kill you possibly. Um, and so he sets an example for uh, Spain as well as uh, Germany, who's ultimately also going to become fascist. Um, all of these three uh, countries have goals for expanding their influence into their neighbors' territories. In 1936, Germany and Italy, they're pretty close to each other geographically, they sign a pact to assist one another um, in uh, taking over uh, the um, other people's like territories and their conquests of Europe. Uh, a month later, it, also in 1936, Germany and Japan signed the Anti-Comintern Pact to help each other uh, combat communism, which they both did not like. Uh, the communists were, were, had originally been trying to make inroads in China, um, but they have also made inroads, of course, in Russia, which is uh, a neighbor to both no, not a neighbor, but very close to both Germany as well as Japan, which just goes to show you how big Russia is. Uh, in 1940, the three countries uh, 
signed the Berlin Pact, which basically solidified their alliance. If you go to slide number 11, the start of World War II, especially as far as Europe is concerned, is on September 1st, 1939. Because on that year, or on that day, I should say, Germany invades Poland, a country that was neutral and that had not been doing anything to anyone. Poland had previously been a part of uh, Germany during the 19th century um, and also uh, during the, like the Renaissance or par in, during parts of their history. They've always been kind of fighting each other uh, over territory. Um, and so the Germans on September 1st, 1939, uh, they decided to attack Poland, uh, which was neutral. The Soviet Union actually assisted them, um, and the goal was that they would split up Poland between the two of them, which they eventually did in October 1939. Uh, Hitler claims that his invasion of Poland is to make what he calls living space for the German people, so a place for the uh, Germans to spread out and continue to grow ethnically. Um, the Polish, obviously, were like, no, this is our sovereign territory, you can't do this. Um, and France and Britain agreed. On September 3rd, uh, France and Britain declared war on Germany. Uh, this war for the first couple of months is kind of not really going to be taking place. It's not until um, uh, like June of 1940 that the war in full actually like starts to pick up. The first eight months of the war, quiet, little change actually happens, little fighting actually happens across Europe. Um, however, spring and summer of 1940, uh, this is going to certainly change. In April, Germany then attacks Denmark and Norway. Both of those countries fall immediately. Uh, Denmark and Norway to this day are pretty neutral countries. They don't get involved in things like warfare. Um, which is probably why they fell pretty immediately, especially Norway, which usually, like, Sweden and Switzerland tends to always be neutral constantly. Um, in May, the Netherlands, Belgium, and Luxembourg, they fall to the Germans. Uh, France, who had been preparing extensively for an invasion, also falls in May, uh, and Hitler marches on Paris, you can see in the top photo, uh, that the uh, German troops marched through the Arc de Triomphe in Paris, which was originally created by Napoleon to celebrate victory over um, the Germans. And so this was kind of the Germans uh, doing the same thing for the French. And basically at this point, the British are left alone. Um, they had to evacuate 380,000 troops that had been stationed at the French port of Dunkirk. Um, which they were able to do. It was a very, like, miraculous um, kind of a retreat. And up until, actually, uh, September 11, 2001, it was the largest uh, naval evacuation of a country ever. Uh, September 11th, they had to evacuate Lower Manhattan, and um, that actually wound up being larger uh, than Dunkirk. But up until that point, they held on to that title for quite a long time. France itself was divided into two sections. Uh, you have northern France, which is directly controlled by the Germans. And then southern France is 
uh, controlled out of the city of Vichy. Um, it's supposed to be a free France type of place, uh, but basically the southern French uh, Vichy government is doing what Hitler tells them to do. So, um, all of Europe, mostly, at this point, uh, with the exception of Britain and Ireland, is basically under fascist control in some capacity. Now, we're going to briefly finish off with looking at what the war was like in Britain. Hitler thought that he would attack Britain uh, both by air as well by sea. His goal was um, crossing the English Channel, which uh, separates Britain from Europe, um, in an, an operation called Operation Sea Lion. Um, and in order to kind of make Britain weakened, he would have the Luftwaffe, which is the uh, German Air Force, attack British cities and um, production sites and airfields. So for months on end, uh, Britain's major cities, London, uh, Coventry, Birmingham, uh, major factories that produced uh, military munitions, um, they basically had to... Uh, expect the fact that they were going to be bombed every single night. Uh, people who lived in houses that were bombed or that were they knew would be blown up if they got dro had bombs drop on them uh, would sleep in the tube stations in London, which you can see in this bottom image right here. Um, Buckingham Palace was bombed at one point. Uh, the Queen was actually very happy at that point. This is the current queen's mother, um, because uh, she thought it was only fair, quite frankly, that they got bombed if all the poor people got bombed as well. Um, and many of the sites, especially in London, uh, were particularly hit. You can see a picture here at the top of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, a very famous historical site uh, covered in smoke. Uh, the Crystal Palace was destroyed uh, during the Blitz as well. The Prime Minister of England at this time is a guy named Winston Churchill. Neville Chamberlain, the guy who said he brought peace to our time, was, uh, he got, they got rid of him. The British have a system where uh, if you lose confidence in the Prime Minister, your party can elect someone else, and that's what they did with Churchill. Uh, Churchill and the royal family, uh, the king whose name is George VI, and his wife named Elizabeth, and their daughters, one of their daughters, the oldest daughter, is the current queen. Uh, they encouraged the people to never surrender. Um, and they also stayed in London to suffer through the months of bombing uh, alongside the people. Obviously, they're doing so from like Buckingham Palace. Uh, but they would go out on promenades and make sure that they could talk to people and uh, kind of provide a face for why these people were going to continue to uh, put up with this. In order to focus the Germans away from production sites, they tried to force the Germans to focus on the city of London. Uh, and as a result, the east end of London, where mostly poorer people lived and immigrants lived, is going to be bombed very, very hard. But because the government was able to force them to do that, uh, they were able to ramp up production in factories and on airfields um, so that they were able to eventually, months later, uh, beat the... Germans out of British airspace and take the fight back to Europe. We're going to stop here today. 
Um, and obviously, this is an American history class, but I talked exclusively about Europe today. But this is quite frankly just one of those days where it's really important that we get all the background of what's happening around the world in order for us to understand the place the Americans are going to have um, in this particular fight. America's not going to join the uh, Second World War uh, quickly. World War II starts September 1st of 1939. The United States doesn't join until December 8th of 1941. So we have quite a bit of time that passes between uh, those two events. We're going to talk about the joining and the reasons why uh, the Americans finally joined um, when we get back from break. So you're going to have this to do today. You're going to have um, your vocabulary to do as well. Um, and then when we come back from break, you have, uh, we're going to continue uh, with our um, uh, next uh, bit of work that we're going to be doing. So we're going to focus on America once we get to the other side of break. Hope you guys have a nice break. I hope you find it very relaxing. Um, and if you have any questions, you can email me. I'm not going to be looking at my computer that much, I'll be honest with you. Um, but if you do have any questions, feel free to email me and I will be checking a couple times over the course of spring break. Enjoy, guys. <laughs>